The year was uh, 1960, and um, there was a new bank in town. It was uh, about at 63rd and Penn, and it made quite a spark with its shopping mall setting and drive-through teller window convenience. And But by the mid-70s, the bank had shifted from suburban housewives and kind of that kind of thing to uh, focus on financing a new customer, the oil and gas industry. And the bank grew astoundingly, aggressively, by making large and kind of speculative loans, you could argue, to the in in industry of energy. Uh, but oil prices peaked in about 1981 and uh, started to fall. A year or so later, uh, rumors of problems spooked a deposit runoff. And on July 5th, 1982, Penn Square Bank was declared insolvent. How many of you remember that day? I was living in Kentucky, and I remember that day. Okay? Um, most of the $2 billion in loans were high risk. And so what ensued on July 2nd, 1982, was a full-scale run on the bank. Um, some people got a little rowdy. I read an article here. Um, a former cashier says, I remember a little elderly woman. She got really hostile. I don't blame her at all. She just wanted her money. She couldn't get it right then. The Associated Press recorded it this way. Hundreds of depositors seeking their money crowded the former Penn Square Bank on Tuesday as the federal government began liquidating the 21st bank to fail in the United States this year. Nearly 100 people stood outside the bank's doors at noon. Think about that. July 2nd at noon. What would it have been like here? Um, waiting to enter the lobby jammed with depositors. A continuous line of cars would drive through the drive-in lanes. Bank workers handed out glasses of ice water to those waiting outdoors in the 90-plus degree heat. We all remember it, kind of, don't we? Um, Penn Square Bank, one person who worked at another bank, a rival bank, remembered uh, at one time where Penn Square Bank recruiters had called him and all his colleagues to woo them away from where they worked at Citizens National Bank by, and it, with the claim to double their salary, give them lavish corporate perks. And he said, it, I didn't do it because it just sounded too good to be true. I, I, I knew a family back in the day, and, and um, um, they were part of this um, kind of situation. And, and uh, I, I remember the stories being told of a corporate jet, an um, oil tycoon corporate jet, who inside on the, um, in the um, uh, restroom of the jet, it was wallpapered in $100 bills. Okay, I think, I think there were those who were saying it just couldn't get any better. And there were those who were saying, this will never fail. Happy days are here again, right? That's the group to whom Amos is speaking today, all right? It was going on in his day, and he's going to say to them, he's going to say, watch out. When you grow at ease in Zion. Watch out when you grow at ease in your life. Now, we're going to deal with that from chapter 6. That, by the way, was verse 1. Bob, can I get you to read verse 4, 5, and 6? Thank you. 
Uh, kind of an interesting indictment, isn't it? When, we, when Amos preached, Israel was enjoying a period of peace that it hadn't experienced in centuries, at least a long time. There was no oppressing nation at that time, and the nations of Israel and Judah were not at war with each other. There was no civil war, at least currently going on. Um, this situation allowed Israel to expand its boundaries to the extent that they almost got back to where they were in the days when King David reigned in the land and, and during Solomon's reign. Now, um, there's kind of this parallel prosperity in the north and in the south. We've described kind of the difference between the north and, and the south kingdom. But at the same time, there was a spiritual decline. And that had been the norm, especially in the, nation, the northern nation of Israel for decades. Beginning with the, the first king, King Jeroboam I, who creates rival centers of worship shortly after uh, King Solomon's death in 930 B.C. Jeroboam II, his son, is assessed as one of the most evil kings in the, in the history. And uh, he kind of followed in the ways of his father and others. To the south, King Uzziah, who is kind of <coughs> lauded in the days of Isaiah. But King Uzziah eventually becomes uh, kind of enamored with himself a little bit and um, proud in his accomplishments. He starts acting corruptly, corruptly by attempting to function as a priest. And, and there were, it was clear in the scriptures that kings are to be kings and priests are to be priests. And so uh, because of that indiscretion, his penalty was to be stricken with leprosy for the rest of his life. Then Amos comes. You remember? This is the fig picker from the south who comes to the north and they say, why don't you just go back to picking figs? Well, he comes to Israel from Judah and he shares a couple of oracles. We said they're woe oracles, right? And it wasn't a woe oracle. It was a Whoa, oracle, right? And we shared one last week. And the other one starts in 6.1 that I just shared where he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion, the arrogant of Zion. Um, and, the, and he's saying this, uh, really addressing Samaria as well, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. They are living in a time of peace and prosperity and progress and arrogance. And... Uh, those are the factors he's going to deal with. Now, if you look at your outline, here's what we want to kind of deal with. Amos is describing a life of luxury in verse 4 that Bob read. What did you see there? What's the luxury he's describing? Yeah, ivory he's describing here. Heard a Okay, there's a couple of things he's dealing with. Now, now I read, a report, I read a kind of a story this week that archaeologists that have worked in Samaria, and that's where he's dealing right now. He's in the northern kingdom. Uh, archaeologists who have worked in Samaria about a century or so ago discovered ivory inlays and in over 500 fragments. Ivory was really, really common, but guess what else happened? Okay, the source for the ivory was probably the tusk of Syrian elephants who are now extinct. They became extinct probably in their lifetime because they just overused that stuff. And, of course, we wouldn't do that today, would we? But that's kind of the picture of opulence here and overuse. Um, um, it's just kind of an interesting deal. Um, there is a life 
of luxury. Uh, look, turn back a page or so and look at 315. 315. That's what he says here. I will smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Now, there's kind of this implication that not only did they have a home to live in, but they had another home and yet another home, okay? All right, so, so I once had um, a, a teenager say to me, talking about how bad things were in his family and uh, how they didn't have really a whole lot of money. And I said... I said, now, were you saying that from the front seat or the back seat of the Jaguar, okay? Uh, it, uh, you know, I, and it's okay to have a Jaguar. I'm just saying, okay? Don't, so what, one of the things we got to deal with as we deal with this passage is our tendency to think we got it really bad when the truth is we really kind of got it good, all right? Um, uh, Estella, you mentioned um, uh, lambs and uh, calves, okay, so so uh, that would be uh, mutton and um, what do you, what, what, veal, veal, isn't, isn't that called veal? Um, now what you got to know is it was standard venison something else entirely, and uh, yeah, venison's deer, that's what uh, the Duck Dynasty cats eat a lot of probably, but um, uh, what you got to deal with here is, and, and hopefully you get to eat some meat today, I bought burger, okay, I've only got burger today, but we'll eat some meat today. Uh, I know Carol and Morgan have had meat because we've talked about that all week. But if you were living in um, 7th century B.C. Israel, you would only have meat on a feast day, three or four maybe times a year. Okay, You remember, that's the significance in Luke 15 when, um, when the father says, go kill the fattened calf. That was for a celebration. Didn't eat meat was not a staple. Okay, uh, couldn't go. It wasn't a deal where every day, and it, this, you kind of got this sense that Marshall Dillon every day went to the Long Branch to have a st- T-bone. You remember that deal? They were always eating T-bones, but of course the cattle were roaming the streets then. So, so in in Dodge City, okay, so it, that was normal maybe for them, but it wasn't normal in Israel. And yet they're eating it. As a daily thing. Now, are you already, is the heat already going up just a little bit here? Because I eat meat every day. I mean, I'm not an herbivore, okay? We've, we've been to cattlemen, so okay, all right. Now, um, so we've got to deal with here with what, what, how fat and sassy these people are. There's another little issue here. Um, would somebody go to Genesis 37, 25? Somebody get that? Genesis 37, 25. Somebody go over there. Thank you, Eileen. Um, uh, and then I'm going to have somebody in just a minute go to, and Steve, I'm going to sign this one to you because you're such a scholar. Second Kings um, 1529. I, I know you can find Second Kings. That's right after First Kings, okay? <laughs> right before First Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Now, uh, they were doing something here that, that is kind of descriptive. Um, Notice here he says, how did they eat? Did you see that? It's talking about what they ate. Then it also talks about how they eat. Did you catch this? Huh? Well, that too. But look look still in verse 4. What's their posture when they're eating? They're, 
the New American Standard says you sprawl on your couch. <laughs> Ellie, I'm sure you don't do this. Are you a good sprawler? Isn't it interesting? Uh, um, uh, Eileen, read Genesis 37, 25. Here's an indication of how they were supposed to eat. Okay, now this is part of the story of Joseph, but what I want, to, want you to catch here is when they ate, what did they do? They sat down. Okay, kind of makes sense, right? That's why you've got a kitchen table and that's why you've got chairs around it. Sit down to eat. But that's not what's going on in Amos' day. This is the first reference in history, uh, in biblical history at least, of people lying down to eat. Could it be more of a picture of opulence here? Lying down to eat, taking their food. Uh, people don't generally lie down to eat, but they were here. Now, I've got to ask a question. You ever been to a pet spa? They got them. I think they got them in Oklahoma City. Is it just me or is there something wrong with that picture? You know? Oh, been to the dog wash? I've seen the dog wash. Um, I, I, I thought it was a little bit over the line when we started having to buy dog food and cat food that has to be in the refrigerator. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is we're not exempt from this indictment in our day, are we? And I don't want to be, by the way, I'm going to try to not be like so many of the preachers were when I grew up. Grew up, They always were telling me what was wrong, but never told me how to make it right. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to get there. But, but kind of we're, we're dangling over this indictment as well. The picture here that's presented is a picture of a party atmosphere. Okay. Lots of food, lots to drink, and that's daily. Okay, now, um, verse 6 I want to kind of hone in on, so let's go back to it just for a second. So we're in 6.6. Six. Those who drink wine from sacrificial bowls, by the way, they're using, they're using utensils they shouldn't be using. While they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. I really don't, we don't know about a whole lot of what that's about. Um, yet, What? They haven't grieved, and, and Jopi, you said it right, when it says they don't grieve over um, Joseph here, um, the ruin of Joseph, which is, you remember, when, they invoked, when he invokes Joseph, that's kind of a key word for Israel. The northern tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, which were Joseph's sons. So when he says Joseph, or he says Ephraim, or Manasseh, that's just a reference to those ten tribes. And it really is a reference to the entire nation, even, even uh, the south, but in particular the north. Now, isn't it true that there are some things, and I need to carefully choose these things, but there are some things that it is right and appropriate to grieve over? You know? Um, and I'm not talking about just the loss of a loved one. I'm talking about 
What are the things that when you read the newspaper cause you to grieve? By, by the way, I don't dare throw that question out for you to answer. We'll be here all day. But what are some things that I ought to grieve over? Okay, Larry, I read your writing sometimes and I think, okay, he's got it right. And then there's sometimes I think, okay, go on, move along, buddy. But okay, uh, but there's times there's some things that I ought to pick and choose to grieve over. And I'm not talking specifically about politics here. Now, Jerry, when I when I receive a, a, a communique of any kind from your office, it teaches me what I ought to grieve over. What Water 4 is doing is accomplishing some things that began with somebody saying, you know what, this isn't right. Okay, so, so he's saying here, there are some things that you're grieving over and you've forgotten to grieve over the nation of, uh, the, the, the state of um, the nation, what's going on. Let's go on now. Bob, can I go back to you? Um, oh, by the way, we were, we were going to read 2 Kings 15, 29. Uh, I had Steve do all that research and I was going to skip right by you. What happened, he's going to predict something that comes to pass in 2 Kings 15, 15 29. Go ahead. And by the way, when I asked Steve to read that, all of you were thinking, well, why didn't he call on me? <laughs> now you know, huh? He got all his names up. Tilgath-Pileser, who was the, the king at that time in Assyria, swoops in and captures all these people and begins to cart the Israelites off to Assyria. And this happens in 722. We're now in about 760 or somewhere in there. It happens as Amos predicts is going to happen. But right now, they're fat and sassy, laying on their couch, eating mutton. Okay? When are you people going to wake up? Is what he's saying. Okay, let's go. Bob, can I go back to you and go to verse 7 and 8 from Amos 6? Okay, I, th I think, I think I can name the issue here. Okay, I'm going to get to it in just a second. It goes in your next blank. So just hang on to the edge of your seat for a moment. I know you just can't wait to fill in that blank, okay? But here we go. I really think that the issue here is not what my sweet, precious daughter-in-law calls a first world problem. What's a first world problem? You heard that term? Okay, uh, It's a wonderful term, actually, Jopi, that really kind of puts my piddling problems in perspective. Okay, uh, Ten days or so ago, I lost my cell phone for about two days. That's a first world problem. In fact, it turned out to be kind of delightful for a couple of days of my life. Okay. Okay. Um, Doyle, I'm going to pick on you here. By the way, Doyle's 79 Corvette is at the show. Okay, anybody else got a car in the show? 
Oh, I was hoping you'd bring your your car. That's a '67 Chevelle. Okay. Now I'm I'm gonna I'm not single. Who who else? Do you got a car in the show, Bill? Okay. What do you bring? Seventy-eight T-Bird. I saw a '59 T-Bird driving in today. He's got a, a two thousand vet C five. Okay, yeah. I'm loving this. Somebody's got, somebody's got a '67 vet out there under a tent, and I understand that. Okay, can I just? Okay, now I'm I'm the guy. Okay, I'm identifying you guys, but I'm also the guy. So okay, this is me. This is how I understand it. Here's a first world problem: getting a scratch on your spare car. Okay, it's me. It's true. And it, I've lost, you know, energy over worrying about it. For crying out loud, it's a car, and it's a spare car. I mean, you know. And yet, okay, I'm indicting myself here. All right? The issue, I think, is here's what goes in your blank. You ready? You ready? Self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. <laughs> and somebody's passing around candy right now. I think it's really good. <laughs> That's very good. I'm looking the other way. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? There's nothing wrong with stuff. There really isn't anything wrong with stuff. I got stuff. You got stuff, and they got chocolate stuff. Yeah, um, there really isn't anything wrong with stuff unless I'm indulged with it. Self-indulgence. What's, what's the kind of the goal? What's the focus of my life? I think that's really the issue here. Now, he described something here that's going to take place in those passages that Steve was reading a little bit ago. Um, uh, there's, when, when the king from the north comes to take them into captivity... And he's going to take him back to Assyria with him. He does something interesting. Look at, look at four two. Go back just a couple of ver- couple of pages here, or a page or two. Okay. Here's, let me. This is what Amos predicts is going to happen. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks. Now, literally, he's referring to a common practice that probably happened in that passage that Steve read a little bit ago where they would literally put a fish hook, no, no, thank you, literally put a fish hook in, the, in, the, in a captive's bottom lip so that they could keep him in line as they led them from a, a, a defeated territory into a territory of occupation. Wow. And it probably happened, just as he predicted. They're going to lead you away with fish hooks. Isn't that an interesting deal? His message here is, this self-indulgence is coming to an end. Wow. Now, um, I, I, I think we've got to kind of come to this. My question is here, what does it mean, in verse 8, when God swears by himself? Now, by the way, he doesn't want us to swear by anything. Uh, not by even his own holy name. But it says here, look at verse 8. Uh, Amos kind of invokes this whole idea. The Lord God has sworn by himself. 
I'm going to take care of all this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to set it right. I'm going to bring justice to bear. What does that mean? Well, it certainly means they're in trouble. But why would God swear by himself? It is his way. It's here, it's, it's a, it's a wordplay, but it, it's his way here of giving the strongest of statements. You could argue the strongest of oaths here. All right? Um, uh, he's going to show what's important here and what's kind of not. Now, um, here, my question. How can you and I show that we trust in God um, rather than the security structures our culture has created. I think this is a hard thing. How can I show that I really trust you, Lord, and not just something that our culture has put in place? I'll give you a, give you a for instance, okay? I've got an ADT sign in my yard, okay? I was a thousand miles away two or three weeks ago, and I start getting calls that a window breach is taking place. What do you do from a thousand miles away? You know, well, dispatch cops and see if there's anybody there. But you know, frankly, and this has happened two or three times in the last five or six weeks, so I don't any longer trust that security system. I'm okay. Nothing bad if you work for ADT. I'm not. It's not a diamond ADT. I'm just saying. It's really no longer trustworthy. And I'm not sure it was ever all that trustworthy to start with. Am I making my point here? Um, John, probably the pistol you keep in... Okay. <laughs> probably the pistol you keep in your, in your glove compartment. I, reliable to a point, would you agree with me at least there? Oh, boy, Bill Parkinson's getting angry right now. <laughs> to a point. To a point. Isn't it interesting how we begin to trust in the security measures we place around us and that our culture has surrounded us with to the point that we no longer have to trust in God? And, and the Bible is trying to say to us, it may be that someday some of that will come to an end. Don't do that. Bob? Bob? No, you're, I'm not advocating that we just blow everything off. Not at all. I, but, but Morgan and I talking, he thinks I'm neurotic, and he's right. <laughs> because I check the stock market every day. He, and because I, I look at my 401k about every week. And, you know, you just, and I'll talk to the guys that are keeping that stuff, and they say, don't do that. Walter, is that good advice? Don't do that? Uh, you do it yourself. Okay. <laughs> Because that's part of my security. And there's nothing wrong with being prepared for the future. You know? I want to be able to do, you know, whatever you guys need me to do, whatever the church needs me to do, whatever my kids need me to do until I, you know, take a dirt nap. But 
Not my term, but it is rather descriptive. I want to be able to do what I can as long as I can. And so there's part of that that I need to put a nest egg away to provide for me and provide for Rhonda when I'm taking that nap. But, okay. But the truth is, that can't be the source of my confidence. If so, I'm kind of sunk. Now, so let me ask the question again. How can we show that we trust God rather than the security structures around which we surrounded ourselves? That's a question that you can answer, but I can't answer for you. It's a question that I'm having to drill down and deal with as I kind of go through life today. How can I begin to trust God instead of the securities that I've placed around me? Now, let's read a couple more verses. Bob, I'm going to come back to you. Read 11, 12, 13, and 14. There's some big words in there. Fasten your seatbelt. Okay, here we go. <laughs> 11, yeah. By the way, that word Arabah that he just finished on is usually descriptive of the desert. And that description that's at the end of that is talking about from all the way north to all the way south. It is in our, our parlance today, it would be in the U.S. saying from sea to shining sea. Okay. The prediction is going to go from sea to shining sea. Okay. From the north to the south. Now, there's a couple of things here we need to kind of catch. Uh, first of all, he says that his plan to kind of bring justice about when there are people starving and yet there are people laying on the couch eating the lamb's leg, okay? There are, there's a plan in place and, and this is going to be kind of settled and he's going to use another nation to do it. So, but the I issue is that God's plan is for no home to be exempt. There'll be uh, big houses and little houses, he said. Okay? That'll be kind of run over. And then he asks, in verse 12, he asks a couple of kind of rhetorical questions that anticipate negative answers, okay? Does a horse run well on rocks? Steve Bailey, can you answer that for us? Doesn't like to? Mm -mm. Don't ask him to? You wouldn't ask him to. We wouldn't ask American Pharaoh to run his next race on chat, okay? In fact, he kind of likes the mud and likes it deep, as I read, have you become as interested in him now as I have? I just, okay, it's a horseman over here, so he knows that stuff. Jerry, your horses, have you ever had a race in the chat? Not, and you're not going to do it because you got some money invested in those guys. You're not going to do that. Okay, so you kind of get it. That's a preposterous. It, it implies, the question implies the answer. No. Um, uh, there's another, another little issue that he kind of says here. Um, 
do you plow the sea with an ox? So it's just a ridiculous, he's not going to do it, right? It implies. So what's the question if these answers, are, these preposterous answers are proposed here, okay? Um, uh, he's he's kind of dealing with their own arrogance here. Justice, he's trying to, they have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness and he's going to, and God's going to change all this. Now, he invokes a couple of places and Bob did a pretty good job dealing with this. Lodabar, you you ever heard about Lodabar? You remember reading about it elsewhere? I put some references in there to it. Lodabar was a place to to which David fled when he was being chased by Saul. Okay, now, implied in that issue, you remember which David was in fear for his life and he's being chased by Saul, he flees to Lodabar. It's a place where no one wants to be. That's why he went there to hide, okay? This is the Badlands. Remember the Badlands? Ever been there? Not a place I'd want to build a house. But they're bragging, we, we conquered Lodabar. Don't you remember? We've conquered Lodabar. Okay, maybe so, but who wants it anyway? It's kind of what, what God is saying through Amos. There's another place. Um, Bob, what was the name of that place? Kiriath or um, Karnaim? Yeah, Karnaim. Uh, that is another one of those places where um, um, it's like um, um, a place that nobody really wants. A couple of those there. So, um, um, it's the idea here, either of those choices shows the arrogant Israelites, this nation, to be rejoicing about the wrong things. And they invoke here some military successes, including the, the um, conquest of Lodabar and the conquest of, of um, Karnaim, which is another kind of insignificant place east of the Jordan. So for Israel to boast of its own strength by saying, okay, yeah, but we, you know, it's like God's saying, so what's the big deal? The Lord is making the point here that their former conquests are not all that impressive. Could it be that some of the things that I've accomplished in my life um, about which I'm kind of proud and if I, I, I throw that up into God's face say yeah but I he's going to say yeah what's the big deal? God loves you. Don't get me wrong. But I've got to choose my battles wisely, I think is kind of the issue here. So even though the nation of Assyria becomes this great, kind of one of the great first world empires, the question is in 14, who's in charge? Just kind of look at 14 real quickly. Who's in charge here? God is clearly in charge. He's going to use, and by the way, uh, Tilgath Pileser, or however you pronounce his name, thinks he's in charge, and he's not. Okay? Um, Jeroboam 1, Jeroboam 2, Rehoboam, all the other Boam boys, okay, think they're in charge at one time. (laughs) They're not. The Lord is still sovereign on the throne. Now, I'm going to ask a question. We're going to deal with it in two and a half minutes. So, Christian... How are we live? How are we to live justly? I want you to go to just go right in your Bible 
to the book of Micah. In my Bible, it's three pages to the right. Okay? Micah 6, verse 8. It's beautiful. This is poetic. Six, eight. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Isn't that a great rhetorical question uh, around which to center my life? Now, my question is here. How are we to live justly in that context? I think Amos is helping us deal with it will mean that I've got to do all that I can to ruthlessly get rid of self-centeredness in my life. I've got to do all that I can to get rid of greed and covetousness because self-centeredness and greed and covetousness, those things that are behind it, are all some kind of form of idolatry. And I've got to get, kind of get rid of that. But I want to use some modern day language here to describe to you what I think the Lord might be saying through a song I've heard Heather sing. I think the title of the song is Hosanna. And we've sung it together. Literally the most important money phrase in that little song. And by the way, there are several Hosanna songs. This is a, this is a uh, Brooke. Uh, yeah, Hillsong. It's from Australia. Here's what I need to pray, maybe every day. John, it's what you're giving your life to. Break my heart with what breaks yours. Break my heart with what breaks yours. Now, that's a dangerous prayer. Because it implies that you're going to end up with a broken heart over it. Steve? What's going on at Seaworth ought to break our hearts. Our good work ought to give us cause for rejoicing. But it, you got involved because your heart was broken for what you saw. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Pretty good prayer, huh? I want to leave with a tribute to dads. This is interesting. It's so true of me. This is called the fatherhood cycle. At four years old, my daddy can do anything. At seven years old, my dad knows a lot, a whole lot. At 12 years old, oh well, naturally, father doesn't know that either. At 14, father, hopelessly old-fashioned. At 21, oh, that man is so out of date, what'd you expect? At 25, he knows a little bit about it, but not much. At 30, maybe we ought to find out what dad thinks. At 35, Let's ask dad what he would do before we make a decision. At 40, I wonder what dad would have thought about that. He was pretty smart. At 50, my dad knew just about everything. At 60, here's where I am. I'd give anything. Sorry. I'd give anything if dad were here so I could talk this over with him. I really miss him. Isn't that so true of us? Would you go with me in this? We'll be in Amos 8 next week. Would you start to pray the prayer, Lord, break my heart for what breaks your heart. I think that's where he wants us to live, okay?
bless you. Happy Father's Day.